Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. Buckled up over there, Mike? Yep. Good, good, good. Well, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm well. Excellent. It's a great way to start. So here we are. We spent a good chunk of time talking about the great divide in our last conversation. We'll kind of carry on that path today. Um, it would it would probably help to have. I mean, we're not just talking theoretical here. You've you've actually sort of walked people up to that divide and, and helped them see. Uh, it it'd probably be helpful to have some kind of story. Uh, maybe pull one out that you've experienced where you can explain a little bit of what this actually looks like. Great. Yeah, that's a good idea. Um, and we should preface it in this regard. Um, so there's a good book came out this past year by Christopher West called uh, Our Bodies Tell God's Story. It's an excellent read. I highly recommend it. Christopher's a good friend. But even if I hated his guts, it's still a good book. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, what, and amongst the many points he'll make, number one is he'll, he'll uh, point out there's over 1,500 references in Scripture to uh, indirect or implicit or direct uh, that the gospel is God wants to marry us. And it's best told in our physical body and our sexuality as male and female. 1,500. So right away, part of what we're talking about with the Great Divide, that Lewis would have been aware of, by the way, is when you climb to the top of the Great Divide in 1816 and look back over 18 centuries, there were far more believers who were familiar with this. And on our side of the divide, very few are. It's just one example. And in the book, he'll point out that in Scripture, you actually see eros, love, erotic love, eros, one of four Greek words for love, that precedes agape. In other words, the embodiment through our sexuality actually is the avenue towards experiencing agape. So I'm going to tell you a story of what happened here many years ago because that's how I saw a young, she was a freshman, so she came to faith. So here is the, uh, here is the story. So we live across the street from a liberal arts college. Actually, uh, was founded as a prep school for college in 1693. It's called King Williams College. And after the Revolutionary War, the uh, new nation wanted to rename the school since it Probably wasn't a good idea to have a school named after the former king. And there was a suggested George Washington, who spent quite a bit of time here in Annapolis, that they name it after him. And he declined, but said because he was a Mason, he said he suggested they name it after the uh, patron saint for the Masons, uh, John, the Apostle John. So it was it's called St. John's College. 
So we used to have uh, students come in and out all the time because we were right across the street. And one evening there was, uh, uh, let me see, I'm, at the, I'm actually sitting here at the table, kitchen table where they sat, and there was one, two, three, four, five. And I'm sitting in the very seat that I was sitting in at this table. And these were uh, here in front of the open fireplace were just kind of open forums, ask whatever you want to ask. And sitting on my left was a junior who I'd gotten to know real well. Um, and he was uh, grew up in a, uh, give you a little bio on each one because I knew most of them. Um, and he had gone to um, oh, a, like a, cl a classical Christian kind of school. And, uh, but over a couple of years in college, his faith had really faltered quite a bit. And uh, we, he and I were actually talking about that uh, he had had here uh, recently one of his, uh, his first sexual experience. And he was, of course, was just, uh, you know, all of that that comes with the guilt and the remorse. And, the, and sitting across from the table was an, uh, 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 another woman who uh, that's who he had slept with. And she too professed Christ, and and uh, so we've got the and not really any tension. It's just here they are all sitting. They didn't probably didn't know that I knew about the other and so on and so forth. Uh, sitting next to him was a senior who uh, had come to faith probably during college. And sitting over on my right, further up, was uh, a freshman. Uh, I'll leave her name out also, but uh, she came from a major Midwestern city and. Then sitting down at the end, his friend, who uh, I'll, he's a friend to this day. In fact, I'll see him tomorrow. Uh, he graduated a few years ago. And he had come out of a Jesuit high school in Tampa. So here we are sitting. And uh, I just let the conversation go wherever it goes. So it starts out. And amongst the many things they're talking about is uh, this freshman sitting over here to my right points out that uh, she's pretty aware of the number of guys on campus who check her out, uh, especially her breasts, uh, to which she said, and they actually are pretty stunning. <laughs> so we'll take They're a pause swear, there. <laughs> now, understand, again, you have to get, get the atmosphere here. They knew... Well, first of all, my wife, Kathy, she teaches, she's upstairs, she's pooped out. And uh, they would often come over for an hour. And she might join, sometimes she might bake cookies or something like that. And So we're kind of, at our age, their the, uh, parents are almost the grandparents for these, for these uh, students, these young people. And I think they feel they can really let their guard down. And so this is the first time I've ever met this uh, uh, woman, this freshman, and, <laughs> and she, and you know, there's, so there's a little hem and hawing, and also if you, if you, you know, classic, five people sitting around me, all five have their iPhones or smartphones out, and all are fiddling while they're talking, um, and so it's just, it's just a real classic scene, and so there's kind of a, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, again, and uh, I don't know why, somehow it kind of turns to me. And I said to this woman, something to the effect of, if I can remember, um, well, do you know why uh, so many guys are checking you out? And she goes, again, she goes, uh, well, yeah, ma'am, I've, I've got a great body. And uh, to which 
I joke something like, well, you know, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, let's just, just take your word for it. <laughs> so actually, there's, um, there's a lot more going on than perhaps you imagine. So if I were to, to um, summarize the next 45 minutes, here's essentially what I said. So listeners, again, you can turn the sound down if you're afraid your kids are going to hear this. Um, so, you know, it's actually a, a very ancient faith that talks about that um, the church is a bride and that bride... Uh, turns the words of her husband into milk for newborns. And I said, uh, so what part of your body does that? She goes, oh, that's obvious. It's my, it's my breasts. And I said, uh, yeah. You know, it's not out of the realm of possibility that uh, the church's husband finds his bride's breasts to be particularly attractive because of what they do for the newborns. And now, again, I'm, I'm going at this very slowly, very carefully, asking a lot of questions, but I did notice one by one, smartphones were turned down, upside down, and us turned off and just laid down at the table. And I have eye contact. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, especially the young man who's sitting down on the other end of the table. And I'll tell you why toward the end. But also with the uh, young man and, and young woman sitting on each side of me who had their first sexual experience just this past week. And uh, But to this woman, I just directed my comments uh, in terms of, are you familiar with this? She said, no. Do tell. And so we talked a bit about how our, uh, in our bodies, especially in our genitalia, that we're telling a profound story. And uh, this is even in a covenant that while many think it starts with Abraham, if you think about the Abrahamic covenant, what was the sign of that covenant, Pat? Circumcision. Yes, and circumcision is what? <laughs> uh, the removing of, of foreskin. Of the? Of the penis. Uh, see, you have to... you got to pry see, that a lot out. Of us like, were raised where, a lot of us were raised in a, in a world <laughs> where, you know, you don't say that word. You say it's your wee-wee. And uh, that's just a real loss. It's the penis. Because... That's what they're thinking when they're in college and they don't have anybody. Now, they go to movies and it's all very plain and very obvious and very clear and very erotic. But you don't hear this kind of talk elsewhere. And uh, I said, yes, it's, the, it's a sign that's on the body. It's in the part that makes the deepest penetration into a woman. At that point, everybody's like, whoa. And I said, so this covenant predates, this goes all the way back to Genesis where the Hebrew word is God is a covenant-keeping God. He's a covenant. Uh, and, and second, as Isaiah told the Judeans, 
in Babylon who had forgotten this. Our creator is our husband. And so we spent some time talking about that your body is actually telling a story. And now the story can be corrupted. So the look that Augustine talked about, and yes, Augustine talked about how men look at women. And it can be as natural and as pure and as... But Augustine talked about, because of his past, that that look can become a leer or lust. And as he pointed out, it changes all the dynamics. And she, this young woman goes, that's for sure. I mean, I think if I was a woman, that would explain uh, why I'd be drawn to feminism, to women's liberation, is I'd be tired if I had a shapely body of everywhere I go, I'd almost want to go, look at my freaking face, guys. Well, one hour into this, she says to me, how come nobody ever tells us this story? An hour later, Pat, she came to faith here at this table. Now here's my lament. She graduated this past year. She never found a church in this town that shared this story, the gospel. Yet this is the gospel as it was understood for 1,800 years, and is still understood by the faith community on the other side of the great divide. You can see it in Luther's writings. It is said that Calvin, when he died, he wanted the Song of Solomon, his favorite book in the Bible. He wanted to be holding that. We see it in numerous Catholic writers. And so this, this was a, uh, it, it was, well, put it this way. So about 11 o'clock, a little after 11 o'clock, 11.30 at night, when I go upstairs, climb into bed with Kathy, she said, well, how'd it go tonight? And I go, well, let me see where I can start here. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the evening. Um, very quickly, uh, it helped heal some of the others at the table because they too recognized if you go to even a classical Christian education, which has much to commend to it, you never hear this. And it, it, unfortunately, most of these educations have become treating people like brains on a stick. And so the old notion out of the enlightenment on this side of the divide is uh, classically put as head to heart to hands. So you stuff the head with information, it leaks into your heart, changes it in that direction of hands, and it changes what you grab. And um, it's just the opposite, actually. It's just the opposite of how we learn. Adam knew Eve. Adam met Eve, and he didn't go to a seminar on how to have sex. 
they they touched, felt, explored, exhilarated, and they God who is love who made them said, make more love, and they made love. That was highly erotic. But they also discovered agape. Now I'll stop there because I'll tell you in a moment about the young man after I'm sure there's parts of that where you're going, or maybe you just kind of wipe the sweat from your brow. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think this just dives super deep into some of the, the conversations we had early on the whole a day in the life where we talk through just going through a day, how much meaning there is throughout the day. And I mean, this, this just goes straight to the, the core. Uh, I think that's, that's a big element of what, what we're talking about when it comes to that divide. And as you mentioned last time, the surrender of meaning and why I think what you talked about is just continually so powerful is, is as a, as a young man raised in the church, you're often taught, you know, oh, bounce your eyes, bounce your eyes. You shouldn't even be looking. Uh, any thought you have about that is just going to be wicked. You know, it's you got you got to avoid that. You got to white knuckle that and resist. And what I what I love about what you talk about is, no, you're missing the point. You, you know, you're missing if if you actually understood the meaning, then you would see a beautiful woman and your heart would leap for joy for your creator like you would you would understand the meaning of that it wouldn't be a lustful look your mouth wouldn't be drooling you know you wouldn't be going through that you would understand the deeper meaning and that is so uh it's so freeing in a way there's just there's there's no other path but shame if you're taught oh no you 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 simply cannot look there because any look is going to be bad. But what I like about what you said is it, it redeems that that look. It redeems those senses of desire. There actually can be pure desires when you see something that's beautiful. And that's right. Man, like that is, I mean, I mean, liberating, I think, is the right word. It's also convicting uh, for sure. But, but you understand there's, a, there's actually a difference here. It's not just the, the, the act itself. And so I think that's, it's just one example. I mean, it's in, in a lot of ways the core example, as you said, the, the, the chief metaphor here. But, um, but just that single example is so telling of, of the power of meaning. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I'm having some now, I'm having flashbacks to this conversation. And one of them was um, asking these very bright young people, how many ways could God have made it that we could uh, uh, be fruitful and multiply? <laughs> well, it really is an infinite number of ways. Could be you wink at one another, bing, uh, out pops a baby. It could be. See, when you begin to when you begin to uh, just widen the lens and step way back, you go. So why would He create male female? Wouldn't it have been far easier just to create one unisex? Well, because first of all, God is three persons sharing one nature. And the bride, his bride, is a fourth, which is not God, but like God. So other than God, other Greek word hetero. So you would have hetero 
sexual beings. That's why you would create. See, otherwise, we're, everything is, like you said, it's just, it's arbitrary. First of all, I too, when I came to fade, it was just plain as day. You want to upset the apple cart, talk about this stuff. Now, you talk about it very generally. That is, why sex? Sex is to rain, reflect, and recruit, reproduce. That's what I learned. Rain, reflect, reproduce. So came out of the same seminary that I went to. We were taught three points and make every point start with the same letter. And uh, so, and even though that's true, it's, it's another example of the Enlightenment taking and desexualizing and disembodying it and turning it into a an abstraction or a or a biblical principle so you and i are married and we've joked before and I've, there was two uh, uh, years ago i met with two guys and they were uh, they were both happy uh, a brewery i think or a vineyard but they too were wrestling with all this and and because they were married i said so this is how you do foreplay. You say you want to right now. I'm going to apply a biblical principle here. Of, <laughs> oh dear! I said you never have children. I said we don't. You know, Jefferson was the one who said you know he he had these principles about slavery and he had principles about debt and he died deeply in debt and he died with over 100 slaves. But he is an example of this Enlightenment view that if you stuff your brain with enough right ideas, eventually they'll leak into your heart and change your behaviors. And that's not true. And, but you don't see this if you live on this side of the mountain range. You could literally live in Denver your entire life and never know what's just over Long's Peak. You could see Long's Peak to the west. And you could even surmise that's the Rocky Mountains. There's Long's Peak. If you go to the top of Long's Peak, the other side, there's the Pacific Ocean. Because they tell me the ocean's over there. So that's where it is. But if you ever went up to Long's Peak, you could see way far to the west. You could see the Continental Divide. And then you look as far as you can to the west and you can't see the pacific ocean and you would go oh my goodness i didn't know there was this much on the other side of the divide and there is mountain range after mountain range of church traditions and history that have a gospel the gospel that embody the gospel and that understood that the gospel is best told in our body. This is why we may or may not have mentioned this in previous podcasts, but some things bear repeating. Is once you begin to um, see this, your reading of scripture will change. And uh, recently went through Genesis, and I never really appreciated how one of the most common phrases in Genesis is. And he went into her, and he went into her, which we know what he's talking about. They had sex. They made love. How many people ever see that? Now, what's fascinating is that Genesis is, 
if you can imagine the book of Genesis, this is a simple way to understand it. We have a creation slash cultural mandate. This mandate is we are we're made in the image of God, God who is love, and we are to further order the universe and we're to further expand love. And so we make love amongst, in fact, that's how you uh, reproduce. Newsflash for some of you if you're young and you haven't really sorted that out yet. But so, so how does this happen? It happens, it's just like tossing a stone into the middle of a pond and these ripples come straight out in circles. And it's 10 generations in Genesis, it's 10 ripples. And in every one, he went into her, he went into her, he went into her. So how did they... So of course, by the time you come to the Abrahamic covenant, a lot of people think, now this is when the co- this is when it all starts. It's not when it all starts. This thing started way back when Adam met Eve and the covenant-keeping God in the Hebrew phraseology, who is our husband, has made his bride. And the way they expand the circle of love is they make love. That is Genesis right from the get-go. And when this young woman heard this, I mean, they're not on their phone. They're just going, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. So this is why we think so much about sex. And, we're, and we, we imagine one another's bodies naked. And we just, yes. And if we had never fallen... We wouldn't be clothed. Mike, I'm very curious. You mentioned the one guy at the table and his. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What what happened there? He went into the Valley of uh, Anger for a while. Now, he was raised, uh, he was educated in a Jesuit school in uh, down in Florida, and it was, it was an excellent school. But I remember he had a frown, and uh, and I'd gotten to know him a little bit before we were we were becoming friends. And so the next time I saw him, I said, "Hey, what's up?" And he goes, "I am really angry." And I said, "Why is that?" He goes, "Jesuits never taught us any of this, and this comes straight from our tradition, Catholic." Because he too had struggled with all this, and. You're not giving, any, you're not given any um, means or help or vision or inspiration or method or anything to account for it, to come to terms with it. I mean, I remember what it was like to head off to college and in high school, and I mean, you're talking, you are, uh, you are a sexual en- uh, engine, man. It's just. It's revved all the time. And there was no, there was no touching on that. So he went through um, a difficult, he went through a trough of despair. And uh, I began to introduce him to the work of Christopher West and uh, Dallas Willard, who wrote about Augustine's stuff on the luck and the spiritual disciplines. And uh, he came into more fully his faith. He came more, more fully to the gospel because it, well, it, it made sense 
of so much of really almost this, almost in a way, the central part of life. That's why, to your point, which you mentioned earlier, those who have, are, have thought about the Great Divide and the didactic enlightenment, that's the historian Henry F. May, who didn't have any skin in the game regarding Christianity. But his point was that the American version of evangelicalism, very different than the European, the one that started after Lewis's Great Divide, had tremendous impact in terms of conversions, church planning, humanitarian work, missions. I mean, it really cannot be underestimated. It is astonishing. But as he points out, quote, it was often purchased by surrender of meaning. And meaning is making sense of things. On the other side of the divide, the faith made much more sense about many more things, especially our human body and sexuality. On this side of the divide, the American version of the faith may, says, primarily made sense out of or makes sense out of sin, salvation, and sanctification. Which, which are all vital, essential. But it, 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 it depends on how you define salvation, and it depends how you define sanctification. If salvation is, I'm a sinner and I come to Jesus, and I'm saved to go to heaven, then you've left out the whole central organizing historic metaphor on the other side of the range, marriage, and sanctification becomes primarily get your heart right with God, but you're trying to do it without the aid of your body. As we, I think we talked about the disciplines. The point of the disciplines is your physical body, especially your sexual appetites, are not neutral. They're either enemy or ally to sanctification. So if you don't train your physical body, it's highly unlikely you will taste much of sanctification. Now, you mentioned that there are traditions that, uh, that, that understand this, that see past that divide. Um, or, or are just generally rooted in the other side of the divide. But I like mm -hmm. that you called out, you know, this one gentleman was frustrated with his up upbringing, uh, being Catholic. You know, I think we naturally think, oh, so is Mike talking about Catholicism or something? Um, what traditions currently practice this? And are they also sort of stuck in this side of the divide because the Enlightenment yeah. has been so powerful? What is that? Yeah, that's the great bugaboo. That's the right, well... Let's call it what it is, actually a tragedy. And the lament is on this side of the divide, even those traditions are on a continuum, either reticent, forgetful. But right, you, you don't, uh, you can go to any um, 
that I'm aware of here in this town or here in America, and you'd be hard pressed to ever hear this message. And yes, so uh, the Jesuit tradition, as you know, is raised up as a counter reformation, but uh, that reformation uh, slowly but surely drifted into uh, an enlightenment disembodied view of the faith. And so it's actually, uh, I think the tragedy is that um, coming out of the, the didactic enlightenment, the most powerful force, if you want to talk about just flat out zeal, was the evangelical tradition. But unfortunately, it's too often zeal without knowledge. Especially when you think about as the Gospel of John reaffirms what's in Genesis, knowledge is first and foremost embodied. Knowledge is what you taste and touch and feel. Adam knew Eve. And so it's, it's zeal without knowledge. And in too many of the pre-divide traditions, they have become polluted, in my opinion, by the Western world and by Americanism particularly, and they have become a loss of knowledge and, and very little zeal, frankly. And so where American evangelicalism has become powerful around the world is it taps into zeal, or the more popular word today is passion. And it's passion without knowledge, which, I mean, here's the irony, Pat. When the Apostle Paul, the most dysfunctional church he had to work with was the Corinthian church. I mean, you got a, you got a son-in-law, you got a son sleeping with his stepmother and they're not doing anything about it. Um, they're desecrating the communion. Some are hungry when they come in, so they just grab everything out of the table, chow. And what does Paul do to address all this? His lament, he says, in his in 2 Corinthians 11, this is probably his third letter. We probably don't have the first letter. So 1 Corinthians is his second letter. 2 Corinthians is his third letter. And in 2 Corinthians 11, too, he says, here's my lament. I betrothed you to Christ. I married you to Christ that I might present you as a pure virgin. They've forgotten all that. We've forgotten all that. And so as a result, why are, to a large extent, what accounts for the vibrancy of American evangelicalism, and I'm not discounting the vibrancy, the zeal, but it's zeal packaged in, in what is characterized by Hofstetter and so many other historians as practical zeal. Let's get practical. And practical means, Pat, you come to faith. The gospel is you're a sinner. God loves you. You're a sinner. Jesus died for your sins. So the cross is not betrothal to Christ. It is simply payment for sin, and you have an obligation to see others come to faith. And that kind of laser focus 
is highly practical, highly mobilizing because it's, it's, it's a simplistic understanding of the gospel. But remember, something that simple can also be far more mobilizing in terms of getting something done practical. And what's practical? In your love for Jesus and zeal, you want to see people come to faith. So the cross is a cross talk. And the talk is, you're a sinner, and come to faith. And you don't have to get into any complexities of, oh, yes, of course you're a sinner. Of course the cross is payment. But the cross is, more profoundly, marriage. And you can see in American sensibilities, like, whoa, 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 that's just... And they'll quote something absurd like... Um, you know, I just want a simple faith. Well, remember what Paul is talking to there is the childlike faith, that is, childlike simplicity of devotion. That's different. I'm supposed to have a simple devotion to my wife, Kathy. But as Lewis said, if you're looking for a simple faith, this is not a simple faith. And he used the example of, I'm sitting here at a table. And he said, look at a table. It's not that simple. If you say, oh, I mean, it's just two legs and you know, a tabletop. That's simple. Really? Well, how do you get put together? Oh, people put it together. Oh, mm -hmm. just uh, hands. and Well, no, I guess you, you got to have tools. Oh, you know how to use those tools? Mm. And where that wood come from? That comes from trees. So the trees walked in the other day and just shaved themselves down. And that's the point. Lewis is saying, if you're looking for a simple faith, this is not a simple faith. And it's never been a simple faith. But Americans are drawn to, I want it, keep it simple, stupid, and practicality. And uh, when I was in Britain for a summer, I mean, they, they love to say, you Americans are... Ready, shoot, aim. You, I mean, you you can't you get things done, but in our zeal to get things done, that is fulfill the great commission, so that Jesus will return. That's the tradition that brought me to faith, and I don't belittle it. But we left out. We see no connection between the Great Commission and the and the whole mandate given in creation and the garden of flourishing and what have you. Those are, those are entirely disconnected. And when, if you start to get into all that, you watch American eyes glaze over. I thought this was much simpler than that. If I were to say, as Einstein, you know, Einstein said, everything should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler. The simplest on the other side of the divide is that God seeks to marry us. And that's why that young person here came to faith. That's why when I last saw her, she's never forgotten that. And that's why she feels like an exile, an outsider in the American church. And that would go for, at this point, any tradition, even those on the other side of the divide, because on this side, they've been overrun 
by American didactic enlightenment rationalism. So if we look back at church history, uh, I, I'm trying to understand the, the sort of gap. There was definitely a period before the enlightenment where uh, the church had plenty of corruption and plenty yeah, of issues. Yeah. Yep. And so, um, but even I, I like that you pointed out Corinthians, even then Paul's reminding them. Uh, and so even from the get go, the early church, you see people forgot or didn't understand what you're talking about. But ha so how do you, how do you sort of reconcile? Well, before the great divide, the majority of people got this the majority of faiths practice some type of tradition of this. And yet the, that resulted in plenty of corruption and all these other things. A lot of the reasons why the reformation happened. And then even the, the modern evangelical the evangelical has a lot of that very anti tradition because of a lot of these negative things. So there was a question in there. I'm just trying to pull it back. <laughs> so how do you, how do you reconcile? I mean, if everyone got this before the divide, there was plenty of corruption. Then. Oh, everybody didn't, everybody didn't get this before. Okay. It was, it's in the, there were many who saw this, this in God's word. They saw it in creation. Um, that's why, you know, there's a lot of value in Ian McGilchrist, the master and his emissary. So here's someone who is not a believer, but one of the points in his book is quote, Western Christianity is active in undermining itself. And by that, he means all the ancients right across the boards, pagan or otherwise, depicted God and eternity or divinity and eternity as a sphere. And then you can go through church history up until the great divide. And you'll see over and over church leaders, God is a sphere, a circle. It's because a circle is never ending. That's why you're given a wedding ring because when you're handed it, it's a, it's a, a circle has no beginning or end. See that if you, if God's a straight line, there's a, there's a beginning and an end uh, to a line, a circle depicts it. And then they, the ancients again, regardless of their tradition, just looked around everywhere at the universe and spheres are everywhere. Your eyes, your, and, and so it's not a coincidence that our genitalia are spheres. How many ways could God have designed the human breasts? If it's just functionalism, why are they outside the body? Why are they spheres? And why are they so daggum attractive? When we don't talk about that, we can win people to Jesus, but we purchase that at the surrender of meaning. And I would say, now that I'm 65, and have been for 11 months, but, <laughs> uh, you know, one of my laments is, The, if I go back to when I came to faith, my freshman year in college to this day, 
I would almost wager that the chief reason I have seen so many people fall away from the faith is related to sex. Hmm. But we can't talk about it. Well, so to your point, uh, I always joke, become an Augustinian. <laughs> he had a really great view of fallenness. And the fact is, um, you know, he's famous for, for kind of faith. He said, Lord, you know, give me chastity, just not right now. <laughs> um, and so that's just human nature. Think about the Israelites that are coming out and they have wanted to get out of Egypt for so long. And they see, first of all, they turn around and here's the, you know, Egyptians are hot on their trail and there's the Red Sea in front of them. I mean, they first thing they do, I mean, you got to be honest. It, maybe you don't like the language, but they bitch. And they also decided to get satirical. What? There wasn't enough room to bury us in Egypt? <laughs> Thank you, Moses. And they get the Red Sea parted. And God provides for them. And three days later, they're bitching again. How can you be so forgetful? So when you ask, how can traditions be so forgetful? Well, it's just the most often mentioned sin in the Old Testament is forgetfulness and the most often mentioned command in the Old Testament is remember hmm. Americans are drawn to originality oh wow we're doing something no one's ever done before I mean I was part of that I get it and I repented of it The, the driving verb in Judaism is return. And that fits a, but it fits a spherical notion of the gospel, a never ending circle. And we're always returning because we always are prone to wandering and forgetting, always returning. And uh, even the Reformation, therefore, Semper Reformendus always reforming. Semper Fi is always faithful. Marines, Semper Reformandus, always returning. Always returning. Well, what about, what do you mean, like next Thursday? Yes, always returning. Well, what if I don't do it on Thursday? You're going to start forgetting. Ah. For Kathy and I, next month, celebrate 40 years of marriage. Always renewing. What, we don't get a year off? Do we can just go, let's just put the marriage on autopilot i won't <laughs> i won't tell you i love you because it's an established fact trust in it trust god in it and you don't have to do any of these things we're just gonna because you can trust god i've said it once that lasts forever <laughs> gee <laughs> that'll work out real well <laughs> so that pat it's just um we are we are actually, and this has to do with actually what's going on in your company. It's a word that Dallas Willard taught us when he took us through the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread and uh, keep us from the evil one. Protect us. And uh, Willard 
talked a lot about that we are frail. Now here's fodder for a future podcast. We are not fragile. We are frail. What's the difference? Oh, tough questions in the morning. Uh, I'm, I would guess something along. What do you want to do this late in the evening? <laughs> <laughs> fragile can. I'm thinking of a glass. Glass is fragile. It can shatter. Be broken. That's right. Is yeah, exactly right? And then, you know, as you know, but right now, Robin D'Angelo is making bank around the world talking about weight fragility. Well, I'm white, uh, and um, we're gonna. I'm gonna do a column in a couple of weeks on the number of black leaders who are commenting on white fragility saying this is dehumanizing for blacks for everyone to call to classify one race as fragile fragile simply means you can't handle the truth frail is what you see in the bible and that extends across across all races creeds gender color you name it and frail means we're prone to wander. We are prone to forgetfulness. But frail also means you can be resilient and hear the worst about yourself and rebound. Mm. So you're not, yeah, it's fragile, exactly right, Pat. Drop a glass, shattered. And it's the Humpty Dumpty thing. All the king's horses and all the king's men can't put that glass back together again. So the only thing you can do for a glass to recognize is fragile. Frail is Saul breathing persecution and seething and hatred against Jesus' bride and Jesus showing up and saying, why are you hurting my body? By the way, remember in marriage, Paul wrote about your wife's body is yours and your body, Pat, is your wife's. So Jesus says, why are you hurting my body? Well, who's his body? It's his bride, it's church. Uh, but Saul says, who's that? And who are you? I'm Jesus. So Paul understood what it meant to be frail. Frail meant, Wow. He did a 180. David sleeps with Bathsheba. Then has the husband bumped off. Then Nathan, the prophet, comes. It doesn't say, now first of all, what I'm going to share with you is I got to keep it safe because you're fragile. You won't be able to handle this, David. You're going you're gonna to shatter in a million pieces if I really deal with it. If you really... Now, tells him a story. David repents. You can read his repentance, his full-breasted repentance in Psalm 51, Psalm 22. At this very table, many years earlier, I saw a woman, a successful executive, but this person spent several months confessing everything they had done and wronging people. This, this, this woman is not fragile but she is frail like everyone else. And after that 
confession over several months where I wept at the table and she wept because of the people that came in and she and she wanted to do she repented she confessed she didn't explain she took responsibility well, I'll never forget that day when last person left and I said well hopefully I've served you and this woman said well wait I want to become a Christian So there is a, Pat, it is, you're absolutely right. It is a, the Jesus pride and self-included, I'm chief amongst the sinners here. It's often just a mangle. Well, let's put it, let's do it the way James did. Actually, James said, you adulteresses. I have been an adulteress. Feminine ending because my fundamental identity is as bride of Jesus, not Mike Metzger, male, 65, white European, not yet dead male. Uh, I'm, I am, my fundamental identity, Paul said in, in Colossians, will be revealed when he is revealed. When our groom comes with his entourage for the wedding consummation and the wedding banquet and consummation, we will be revealed for who we fundamentally are. We are his bride, not it's not I am, we are. But that means I have been one of the worst adulteresses. But frail versus fragile means that God through his spirit can stand in the path and I have a head-on collision with him like Nathan the prophet had with David. And he'd say, you are an adulteress. And I can say, I agree. I am an adulteress. I repent of it. I repudiate it. And I want to turn. Frail people can do that. Fragile people can't. And so, but frail people forget so the history, our history is resplendent worth it. Every faith tradition, everywhere. But the reason I mentioned my friend down at the end of the table is his is a lament that is often not felt by American evangelicals who know nothing about this. This comes at him like, whoa, this is brand new, man. This is cool. I've never heard this. Wow, this is so original. And you only go, oh my gosh, no, it's not original. It's just you've been living in Denver all your life and you've always thought if you just get to the top of Long's Peak, where I have been several times, 14,000 some odd feet, magnificent, easy climb, by the way. I'm not a mountain climber. This trail's all the way up. You can stand there on the mountaintop. It's like a giant. It's about two football fields wide up there, strewn with boulders, but it's flat. You can stand up there, and you look west, and you just go, oh, my goodness. I didn't know there was all this out west. Yes, it's always been there. You just didn't know it. You know, Mike, the, some of the earlier times when I heard you talk about this, I was like, yeah, this, this makes a lot of sense. I get it. But I don't know if I've seen that when I've been reading scripture and I feel like I have decent biblical literacy and I see hints of that, but I don't know if it's as as direct as Mike really is claiming. 
and then <laughs> uh, even in the conversations, I had a conversation with with a friend, and I talked about uh, Jesus as the bride, and and just our relationship with the Lord as bride. And he was like, "Yeah, but that's only a New Testament thing." <laughs> and then as I read the Bible again more and more, I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is everywhere." It is yeah. all throughout this thing. I just never saw it before. Oh, I know. And uh, so we'll close with a joke. But you see this in, um, so Moses, and he's going to command this army. You have these adults and they're, they're male. So what does God command them to do? Uh, uh, oh, uh, this one he says, don't don't sleep with your, your wife or something? No, no. It's called uh, one of the classic times of, you got to be kidding me, Lord. Uh, he's to uh, circumcise them all. They're adults. Circumcise oh. them. I think there's like 10,000 foreskins. <laughs> so it's called great moments in the Bible. You go, you got to be kidding me, Lord. <laughs> it's one thing to do with a six-day-old. <laughs> Why? That's again, it goes back to, it's all right there in front of you. But it's just like when... Years ago, I started to look for a Mini Cooper, and the next thing you know is you go, oh, my goodness, they're everywhere. And uh, if you reorient to historically the, the gospel is God marrying us, you begin to go, oh, my goodness, this is everywhere. As, or you can read Christopher West's book, Our Bodies Tell God's Story, and he will touch upon this this uh, 1500 direct or indirect explicit or implicit references. And that too is a difficulty in American evangelicalism. We don't tend to be very good at the implicit where we just want to go, where is it right there? Where does it say that? And uh, without any notion of um, the Hebrew of understanding of them being naked and unashamed and, and, uh, and you just, you, if you understand the Hebrew notion, this is a that's those are that's full body and language that has to do with everything. Versus, yeah, they looked about and went, yeah, nice spot, yeah, that's good, that's cool. No, that's not. There's more going on than that, gang. Uh, so that's what we mean by yeah. it's it's everywhere. 